remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day to come together and worship you. We pray that We would do it in spirit and truth in this word preached, and we pray that your word would go out and not return empty as you have promised it never does. We pray that it would perform what you would have it perform in our hearts and in our minds today. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That was what my brother's middle school basketball t-shirt said on the back. I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase. There's no such thing as a free lunch. I was very confused about this as a child. I didn't understand what his basketball team had to do with the cafeteria, um, how that all worked. Now I know that the shirt was trying to say something. It was trying to say that for the middle Tennessee Christian school Cougars, uh, nothing was given Everything had to be earned with, with sweat and, and blood and maybe tears on the uh, practice court. So it was meant to galvanize the players. And in fact, this phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch, actually has uh, a long history and has applications in science and economics and finance and statistics. Again, the idea is that anything that claims to be free, anything that appears to be gratis, is a lie, that there is no such thing, that everything costs something. And for the most part, that is how the world works, right? I mean, most of us have become sort of immune to these, these phrases, you are the lucky winner, or congratulations, you have been chosen, because those things are mostly scams, In fact, I would argue that because of this quid pro quo culture that we live in, that many of us have become, as Robert Capon once said, inveterate bookkeepers. 
In other words, we are hyper-concerned with what we deserve in work and in life and in family and in faith. And what's even more interesting is that often we are just as concerned with what other people deserve, with what they make, with what they've earned, with what their situation is. We might say that we are inveterate bookkeepers with wandering eyes so that we keep a close tally in our own lives, our own ledger books, but we also want to see others as well. The disciples themselves proved this point. They asked, which of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As if discipleship in this world is a, a sort of long interview process for heaven. And when the risen Jesus appears, Peter asked, what is going to happen to John? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. So no one is immune from this, this bookkeeping, this scorekeeping. And that's why I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we read this parable and we get to the sort of pivotal moment when the laborers who have worked all day get one denarius, that our gut reaction is to feel for them. We can tell ourselves these things. They, they worked all day. It was hot. Don't they deserve proportionally more than the others? And frankly, that's, that's what a parable does. Right? It leads us in one direction. It appeals to our natural sentiments. And then we get the twist. Everything reverses course all of a sudden. In other words, a, a parable starts out as a standard story. And then it subverts what we think we know and shows us the truth of God's kingdom. Maybe a more conventional definition might be this. A parable is a short, fictional analogical story that Jesus tells in the Gospels. That's my definition, so you can take it with a grain of salt. We have lots of parables, right? Some of them are in uh, all four Gospels. Some of them are in two or three. Some of the most famous ones are actually only in one Gospel. So think uh, the parable of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. Those are only in Luke. But we can assume that Jesus told a lot of these. It certainly looks in the Gospels as if these are an important part of his teaching ministry. So why did Jesus tell them? Well, that is a little bit of a more complicated question. And I don't want to get into sort of the weeds of, of parable theory, which is a thing that people write books about. Um, but I would encourage you to be skeptical of a couple things when it comes to parables. First, of simplistic definitions of what a parable is. So if someone says, well, a parable is just an illustration, then that's a little bit like saying, well, a diamond is just a rock. Well, maybe technically it's just a rock, but they clearly mean a lot more to us than most rocks. Or you may hear someone say, a parable is just trying to make one point and only one point. And this is actually the prevailing view of parables right now, but that's not necessarily true either, because the parable of the sower, which Jesus himself interprets for us, has more than one point. So beware of simplistic definitions of parables. But on the other side of the coin, uh, there were times in church history when it was very common for people to take parables and make them far too complex. In fact, some very great men in, in church history have done this. So think Augustine. Um, people have taken 
the allegorical content in parables and sort of carried it too far so that every little detail in the parable stood for something else and nothing was really as it seemed. One of the problems with that is that Jesus told these parables to normal first century people and he definitely meant for them to understand what he was saying. So when we read a parable, we should try not to reduce it and we should try not to convolute it. In other words, we don't want to take away too much and we don't want to add too much. We should try to take the parable as it is. Like most parables, this one begins pretty straightforwardly. Uh, it actually sort of begins in chapter 19. Jesus talking about rewards and judgment, and he continues in that vein. There is a master of a house, so think uh, the owner of a large estate. And he has some work that needs to be done in his vineyard. We know a couple things about this master right off the bat. For one, he is invested because he goes himself and gets these workers. And for two, he is fair because he offers them the standard wage for a day of work, which is a denarius. So what exactly was life like for workers like this? Well, probably not very good. Uh, their situation is uh, on some level less stable than even a slave. A, a slave at least has a centralized place to work and eat and live. But for these folks, they don't have that. And there's no union, there's no one out there to make sure that they get a fair price for their labor. And they're also uh, getting probably some of the more difficult jobs, at least physically, if in fact they get the opportunity to work that day. So just the fact that there is a, uh, a fair man ready to pay them a, a solid wage for a whole day of work means that this is a good day for these men. So once the early morning crew is situated, the master of the house goes back at the third hour, that's 9 a.m. Then he goes at, at 12 p.m. at noon, and again at 3 p.m. And each time he says, whatever is right, I will give you, which again is a, a good deal for someone standing around waiting for work. Finally, he goes out the 11th hour at 5 p.m. Knockoff is at 6 p.m. It's a 6 to 6 work day, and he goes and gets men at 5 p.m. Now, why does he do this? Why would he hire someone for one hour? There's some different ideas out there. Um, some people think that he has a lot of work to do, and it's very urgent. I don't really see that. Um, I think if you look at verses 6 and 7, that he goes back at 5 p.m., and he says to the men, why do you stand here idle all day? This is actually not an accusation of laziness. It's an objective question. And they say, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Almost a sense of sort of off you go. You're with me. In other words, it almost seems like the master of the house is, is doing this out of goodwill. There's certainly a business element here. He has work that needs to be done in the vineyard. But he has compassion for these men who have waited all day to be hired. If they were lazy, I think they would have already gone home by 5 p.m. I might have gone home by 5 p.m. But they didn't give up. And eventually the master comes and gathers them. It's also interesting that he does it himself. As I mentioned, he doesn't send his foreman. Almost as if he relishes bringing these men off the street. So that's the first half of the parable. The second half is where the drama comes in. 
When it's time to settle up that evening, the foreman appears and the master says, pay them their wages, but go from last to first. There's something unusual there. So would raise some eyebrows to give out the rewards in reverse. So the men hired at 5 p.m. show up. They're probably pretty fresh, not too sweaty uh, in an hour. And what do they find but a denarius, a full day's wage for one hour of work? The parable skips over those in the middle hired at 9 and 12 and 3 and, and goes straight to those who were hired first, the early morning crew. This parable is dealing with the first and the last. These men have been working since 6 a.m. And word has spread of the generosity of the master. And they are practically salivating. They are seeing the dollar signs. They may be hearing the cash register sounds in their mind. And they're thinking, if those guys got a whole denarius for one hour of work, and I worked 12 hours... That's like 12 times. That's, like, that's almost two weeks of pay for one day of work. But what do they get? They get a denarius, just one. And they are crushed. And suddenly, they become accounting experts. They become experts on work-labor relations. And they begin to tally and they begin to make their case. They open the books and we should notice the language here, which is not as spare as the rest of the, of the parable. These last, verse 12, worked only one hour, they say. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. So we're going to pause here and start to unpack this. The, the parable is making a larger spiritual point. That's what parables do. So we know that the vineyard is life. And that what Jesus is talking about is not actually the evening of the day. He's talking about the evening of the world. He's talking about judgment day when he returns. In other words, this is a parable about equality. Not the political kind that we talk about, but the spiritual kind. It's about justice. It's about mercy and grace and merit and what all of that looks like before the judgment seat of God. And already, I think there's some tension here inside of us because if we got to pick who to be in this parable I think we would want to be the master we would want to be the supervisor the the director the boss my wife and I watched uh, Cool Hand Luke the movie a few weeks ago with Paul Newman Uh, he's on a road gang uh, and the inmates have uh, like no rights on this road gang they have to always inform the boss, really ask the boss, whatever they want to do. They have to say, taking a drink, boss. Walking over here, boss. They have no freedom. And Luke, Paul Newman's character, really hates this. And so do we. We want to be the boss. In fact, in this world, many of you are a boss. Vocationally, you have people who work under you. But the problem is we think about this, try to apply it spiritually, is that the evening of the world is coming when the books will be opened. And at that time, there's going to be a great flattening effect. In fact, it will be the most fair, the most just, the most equitable moment in the history of the world when we all stand shoulder to shoulder as laborers before the master. Some of you 
in this life have labored hard in a couple different ways. You've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You've done many good things, good things for the kingdom and otherwise. And on top of that, life has been and is hard. In fact, if I start ticking off the ways that it's hard, even that, I think, would sound glib. Uh, it's, it's very hard to address suffering in general because suffering itself is so personal. In other words, if I say life is hard, jobs are lost, people get sick, loved ones pass away, that may be a true thing to say, but it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the gut-wrenching pain, just the excruciatingly personal hurt that many of you have experienced. That's why we have so much to pray for in our pastoral, uh, our pastoral prayer, right? Because if this world is our vineyard, then this vineyard is rough and it's hot and it's difficult and no one has it easy. And that's why the Bible is so clear-eyed about suffering in the lives of all people and of Christians in particular. We have to be careful because in the midst of suffering or sometimes because of it, we start adding. We start calculating. I did this, therefore I should get this. Quid pro quo. And it's very subtle. Probably not doing this consciously too much. Sometimes we bring this attitude to prayer into other relationships. And this is very tricky because uh, there is a sense in which God's world does include certain causes and effects, right? Certain dividends for the faithful and consequences for the unfaithful. Proverbs talks about this often. Uh, God's world is not entirely without order. And so we can be lulled into thinking, maybe even expecting rewards according to our own calculus, and frankly, if God is who he says he is, then that is a dangerous thing to do. I think for, for three reasons. First, because we live in a fallen world. In other words, we live in a world where the balance of things is, is sort of out of whack. So that sometimes evil is returned for good and good for evil. All of it is under God's sovereignty in the end. It will work eventually for his glory and for our good but it may not be till the end. In a fallen world, our accounts in life are particularly volatile based on lots of outside circumstances. Second, because we always miscalculate. Always. That is human nature, or at least fallen human nature, that we want to magnify, sort of like a, a funhouse mirror, our successes, those get blown up and our failures shrink down small in our own eyes. Third, we are not very good at thinking of the standard. In other words, of using God's perfection, God's law, God's holiness is our standard. We have too much of a wandering eye looking at other people's ledgers and measuring ourselves against those. 
Jesus tells a very short parable in Luke 17. For our purposes, we just need to hear his closing line. He says to the disciples, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In other words, as servants of God, we can never meet, let alone exceed God's expectations, our obligations to him. In the end, we really shouldn't be very eager to ask for what we deserve from the Lord. It doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, but we just have to be careful with the tallying, with the calculating, lest we put ourselves in the position of the master. And that's what the laborers do. It says, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. They receive the fair wage that they had agreed on and they grumbled. They saw what others got. They began to make assumptions. And in reality, they were putting themselves in the place of the boss. They wanted to suspend the judgment of the master himself and replace it with their own, thinking that they knew better. I don't know about you, but I have lost count of the number of times in my life that I thought I knew what was best for my family, for my friends, for myself, and was proved very wrong, sometimes embarrassingly wrong. So I tell my three-year-old all the time, I say, trust me, I know what's best for you. You can trust your father. But then I fail to trust my own father in heaven. So they decided that they knew better. They made the wrong calculations and they grew envious. William Hendrickson calls this gruesome, soul-destructive envy. And along with that kind of envy comes grumbling and grumbling, we have made that a very soft thing. Grumbling is not a small offense in the Bible. And so they colorfully describe this, this burdensome day and the scorching heat. I think in the context here, they may be exaggerating their day. But what does the master say? He says, I am doing you no wrong. In other words, what I have done is perfectly just. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, he asserts his, his power, his sovereignty. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? What do we learn about God in this? First, that he's just. That no one will receive what is less than fair. Second, that he's sovereign. That he can give out the rewards that he wants to give out. That he gets to choose. And third, that he's not just fair, that he's generous. He's benevolent. He's prodigal, Tim Keller said. He said, God is a reckless spendthrift when it comes to grace. 
So think about that for a second. If the master here represents God and tells us who God is, then that says something profound. As R.T. France put it, he said, the kingdom of heaven does not operate on the basis of commercial convention. In other words, the master in the parable is a commercial fool, France says. He's generous without calculating. He hires people who do not need to be hired, and then he pays them wages that he does not need to pay them. And what is that if not the gospel? The good news that God is generous and gracious and kind beyond our wildest imaginations, beyond anything that we could imagine. Because we are so often miserly and calculating and envious. Meanwhile, God is extravagant. He's prodigal. He's grandiose. So that when he looked at you and at me and at all of his church, he didn't ask himself whether he needed us. Because of course he didn't. He's perfect in and of himself. He didn't ask whether he needed us. He just said, off you go into my kingdom through the blood of my son. And God can do that. God can spend recklessly on us because on the cross he paid the whole debt himself. So that the real life equivalent of the master lavishing a denarius on workers who had only worked one hour, the real life equivalent to that is you and I being called, being found by him and invited not just into a business relationship, not just into a quid pro quo arrangement, but into a family. In Christ, we've been adopted and made sons and daughters of the Most High so that we can't begrudge his grace to anyone else Because God did not begrudge his grace to us. In God's economy, he says, the last will be first and the first last. So what does that mean? How can we be last? (laughs) We don't think about that very often. How to be last. I think G.K. Chesterton was probably right when he wrote the Times of London. They had asked their readers to answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton famously wrote back, he says simply, Dear sirs, I am. To be last is to recognize our fallenness in general and our sins in particular and to see ourselves clearly before God. What do I mean by fallenness in general? Well, total depravity is the big theological category for this. It does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It means that every part of us, Every action, every motivation is tainted by sin. That's fallenness in general. But we should also keep a close eye on our sins in particular. That is, how our depravity manifests itself in real life, real world, specific situations in our hearts. Now, if you're listening, if you're listening closely, you may think, he said, keep an eye on all of these you know, these sins, that sounds a little bit like bookkeeping. He told us not to do the bookkeeping. That's uh, true to an extent, but here's the difference, I think. I said not to keep a ledger. The ledger that we shouldn't keep has a big R word on the front, reward. I think the ledger that we should keep also has a big R word on the front, and it's repentance. Repentance. 
repentance. The last will be first. The first will be last. That's two categories of people. Sheep and goats elsewhere in the Bible. The first who will be last are the ones interested in their reward. They think there's no such thing as a free lunch. So they're calculating and they're out to get theirs. The last who will be first are the ones interested in their repentance. And they know that there is lots and lots and lots of free stuff at the hands of a just and sovereign and gracious and generous God. The most poignant illustration that I know of this idea that the last will be first and the first last comes from the Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor, her short story, Revelation. I'm going to change it a little bit to make it uh, suitable from the pulpit. In this story, there is a very pharisaical woman, and her name is Mrs. Turpin, and she has a vision of heaven, and it's this. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of people of all races in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little bit of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. That's what will happen in the evening of the world at Judgment Day. Our books that we have kept will be burned away, and it will be God's books that will be opened. And in that moment, he will be far more interested, and we will be far more interested in repentance than in reward. Although reward is surely to come. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and this message of grace in this parable. That you are never less than fair, but you are always generous as well. We pray that we would remember that when we look at our lives and and do not see the things that we want. When we're tempted to look at our ledger and see what we have earned. We pray that we would instead trust you and trust that you will be kind and gracious and generous to us in the end. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.